This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of PlantYourself.com and the Big Change Program with Josh Lajani. This podcast is part of my mission to empower you to live a healthy and joyful life. Before we get to today's show, I'd like to introduce you to someone. And that someone is my inner bully. Perhaps you know what I'm talking about. Maybe you have your own inner bully. The inner bully is the one who, every time I get excited about something, about something new, about a new capability, about a change I'm going to make, about how things are going to be different, about how I'm going to transform myself, the inner bully goes, yeah, you're never going to change. You've tried that stuff before. How many times have you tried to meditate? How many times have you tried to start an exercise program? How many times have you done this or that and you've always failed? Just forget about it. You're never going to change. You're always going to be just the way you are. And like a bully, the inner bully can make me slump my shoulders, give up in despair, cry, want to run home to mommy, and just give up on whatever change I'm about to make. And you know, the better I do at making that change, the louder the bully gets. Because then the bully says, yeah, you're so excited now, but it's all going to come crashing down. Imagine how disappointed you're going to be. You've meditated for 27 days in a row and you know you're going to quit. Imagine how bad that's going to feel. So just stop now. Well, that's my inner bully. And if you have an inner bully, I'd like to tell you about the Beat the Bully Report. This is the free report I'm giving away in March 2017. And you can get it by going to plantyourself.com slash bully. Because I find the bully is one of the most insidious, pervasive, damaging voices inside our head when we start to make change and we start to get traction, we start to get leverage. Because the bully's job is just to stop us, to make us doubt that we can do it. And it kind of sucks. So after years of working with the bully and working with other people to help me beat the bully, I figured out some pretty quick, simple, effective techniques. And I'd like to share them with you. And you can get them on the Beat the Bully Report, which again is at plantyourself.com slash bully. And when you do, you'll also get a subscription to the Big Change Bulldog, the weekly-ish newsletter from plantyourself.com, from which you can unsubscribe at any time if you decide you don't like it. Okay, so let's talk about today's show. If you listened to last week's show with Paul Chatlin, you'll recall his epiphany moment was when Blue Cross Blue Shield was willing to pay $120,000 for his bypass surgery but was not willing to pay $700 for him to learn how to cook healthy meals so that he would never need bypass surgery. Today's guest, Ken Beckman, is a rare bird. He is an actuary. He is someone who manages risk in the insurance industry, and he has figured out alone, pretty much, among anyone in the insurance industry, how much money could be saved, how many lives could be saved, how much the industry could be improved and rationalized by paying for those very sorts of things that Paul Chatlin was talking about last week, by having insurance companies incented to keep people well through prevention and specifically through plant-based nutrition, then waiting for them to get sick and need meds and treatments and surgeries and all that stuff. I'm hoping that someone listening to this podcast is going to get the idea to start the world's first really smart health insurance company based on the numbers that Ken has crunched and the science and all the data. Talk about an opportunity to disrupt a sucky, inefficient industry. This is a big one. 
And of course, all the rest of us are going to benefit from lower premiums, better health care, and better health. So without further ado, Ken Beckman, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you very much, Howard. Good to be here. Let's start with uh, who you are and what you do, because that will kind of frame the rest of where we're going in this conversation. My profession is an actuary, and uh, actuaries uh, essentially manage risk for companies, primarily insurance companies. So I've been working in the actuarial field for about 20 years, over 20 years, and um, mostly in the life and health insurance industry and uh, doing various things in terms of uh, life and health insurance products and uh, coming up with the the rates that uh, the companies charge for those products and also the reserves that they set aside to uh, pay any, any of the claims that come come about in the future. And so just basically, uh, you know, they're, they're uh, security systems, financial security systems for the public that they rely on. And, and we as actuaries try to make them uh, sound so the company has enough uh, money to make a, make a profit and, and uh, pay the benefits that they've uh, promised. Gotcha. So, so I think in like college, I took some probability courses, and and some of the examples were sort of from the insurance industry. So I think I may have a basic understanding of how this works. But let's say when you when you're trying to set an insurance premium for you know Joe Blow, who's 50 years old with a certain set of of characteristics and demographics. So what goes into that? In in you know in the, the normal, I, I want I kind of want to lay out like what. What actuary insurance insurance actuarials you actuaries usually do, so we can then segue into why we're having this conversation. Sure. Well, at, at a real simple level, let's just take. I know we're not talking about life insurance, but just consider life insurance for a moment. We know that a 50-year-old, you know, they may have a life expectancy of say 25 to 30 more years. So we essentially say they've got a pay us amount of uh, premium to cover that next 30 years or so to when they die that we'll be able to pay them whatever their chosen benefit was a million dollars let's say and and it's really very similar uh, with health insurance but there's more variables obviously it's not just uh, life and death it's how many times does uh, somebody need to go to the emergency room, how many times do they see their doctor for uh, routine visits, that type of thing. And so you you look at data and studies and, and your own policyholders and determine that, you know, somebody who's 50 or 60 years old are going to incur this many claims per year and, and you're going to have some people that have very large claims, some people that will have no claims, and you basically create this... Uh, mathematical model to uh, determine what price tag you need to put on those services. Yeah. So help, help me see if I'm, if I'm correct here that, so if you have a bunch, so it's basically pooled risk. So that, correct. so a whole bunch of people together um, can kind of smooth out. So if something terrible happens to one of them, then everybody doesn't have to save for that possibility, but a bunch of people save a little bit. And so if it does, you know, when it happens, kind of, you know, act of God, roll of the dice to one person, it's basically the community stepping in 
to cover what needs to be done for them. That's right. As an actuary, we um, we can't really predict uh, for a given person whether they're going to need a million dollars of uh, medical treatment or no medical treatment. But when we take a large group, the community, like you said, um, we can get pretty precise in terms of this is the average cost that, that somebody is going to uh, use use for medical services. So, so in, in, in my hypothetical model, if you have a whole bunch of people, you know, let's say uh, 100 people, <laughs> for mm-hmm. my little brain here, so if we have 100 people and we're looking at the past or, or we're, we're expecting that a certain number of them will have heart attacks, a certain number will have strokes or, or develop diabetes and need to be on medicine, a certain number will get, you know, fall out of windows and need to go to the emergency mm-hmm. room. And we take that whole amount of money and that, we're, that all the care that would be required for that group of 100 people and we then divide it by 100 and everybody pays that percentage of it plus whatever the insurance company gets for profit. That's it. I mean, at a high level, that's exactly what, what, what happens. Okay. So let's, let's put a pin in that for right now. And so, you know, we're not having this conversation to kind of train a new generation of plant-yourself actuaries, <laughs> but to, to kind of go, you know, to kind of go into the, the intricacies of the insurance system and, and some of the ways in which it may not be entirely rational. So when, you know, what, what, when did you begin to see that there might be other ways of, of setting up insurance and insurance companies um, that might be more beneficial for people and better for companies? Well, I think it really gets to the, uh, the plant-based diet, really, and, and my, my experience with that and seeing how, how uh, powerful it was in terms of improving people's health and, and just knowing that uh, power is out there that that the uh, insurance framework as it's set up right now is really not aligned with uh, getting that concept spread to as many people as possible. So this is where I have trouble because I, w- I would say, th- you know, I, I grew up, um, you know, if, if not a huge cheerleader of capitalism, at least sort of respecting its good points. One of its good points was that the ruthless efficiency of the market, that when something better came along, like when Google came along, everybody started using Google and stopped using AltaVista. Right. Right. And right. When, uh, when the internal combustion engine came along, people stopped using horses. And, and that, you know, long-term issues aside, for the short-term benefit, that if somebody came along with something better, more efficient, cheaper, more convenient worked better, saved money, that people would flock to it. So mm-hmm. how, how is it that if we, the insurance company, you know, for example, I was talking to somebody the other day who was trying to get their insurance company to pay them for an $800 course um, on plant-based diets. And the insurance mm-hmm. company okay. wouldn't pay that, but they would pay the hundred and twenty dollars to $135,000 bypass surgery. <laughs> So, right. <laughs> so explain to me, like, what are the obstacles to the insurance companies being intelligent about this? 
Well, that's a very good question. It's uh, a, a lot of it, I think, is just um, uh, not willing to change, and that's not unique to the insurance industry. Obviously, we're all uh, many people are set in their ways, and and unfortunately, uh, not uh, not willing to change. So, I don't have a a perfect answer for you. It, it kind of boggles my mind, and something that I think about a lot and why hasn't this been uh, adopted by the insurance industry and, and other industries who are involved in, in healthcare. Um, but I think uh, it really gets down to if, if people are exposed to the concept enough, then I, I think it, it can change. It's, it's right now, I, I know the uh, momentum and the exposure is kind of Growing, but it's still relatively on uh, on the margins. It's not a uh, you know it's not a front page story every day in the newspaper on on the news. So I think uh, that's really the, the the big obstacle there that it's still this marginalized concept that that many people view as as not mainstream, uh, even though it's you know the the really the most effective uh, thing out there for uh, reducing costs. So let's let's dive into that for a second. So, you know, people can listen to me talk about like my own plant-based journey, how I've helped people and they can read scientific studies or a China study and the Google's books and things like that. But when so you're you're just sort of a dispassionate numbers guy, like, you know, in in your profession, what do you see? What did you see when you started looking into a plant-based diet that made you think that this was better than than drugs and surgery? Well, it's it's probably not any different than the studies that that you've seen. You you know you referenced the China study and the, and the work that uh, Dr. Ornish and Dr. Esselstyn and, and others have have done, and and just seeing that the results that they've had and and I see in my data you know what a uh, bypass surgery costs or uh, what it costs to treat diabetes or obesity, and um, it, it's it's just so. Obvious, it, it really doesn't take a, an actuary or a scientist or anything like that to figure it out. Any anybody can see that the the plant-based option is a much uh, cheaper, safer, and better all-around choice. Uh, but but if if you're an actuary and you're you're discussing things with your fellow actuaries in the insurance industry, like that's what I don't get. Like people, you know, you talk to them about diet and everybody gets defensive because they want to eat the way their mama cooked for them or you know, eat the bacon that they love. Mm -hmm. and so there's all this emotion in it. But I'm just like hoping like there's a group of people who just look at numbers. Well, and and that's what I try to focus on. I, I don't uh, try to lead with it being a diet, and I view it more as a cost uh, reduction vehicle or a uh, health care improvement vehicle. And I know maybe that's... Uh, splitting hairs a little bit with words, but uh, I think it's important to, especially when you're in an industry, you know, you don't want to say, you know, try this diet and it will help lower our costs. You want to say, here is an approach that has been proven to reduce healthcare costs more than any of these pills or procedures that we're currently paying thousands of dollars for. And it has no side effects. It has positive side effects, and and the the results 
can be seen very quickly. And, and so that's, that's the approach that I, uh, try to use when talking to people. And, and quite honestly, I haven't, uh, <laughs> haven't made much headway in the, in the industry, but I, I hope to. So, 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 you know, help me follow the money a little bit, because obviously there's a lot of players who are making a lot of money off of the current system. Can, can you kind of paint, paint that picture? Cause you know, I can get into, I can rant and rave about, you know, <laughs> companies and drug reps and doctors and hospitals and health clinics, but you know, I don't have the, the numbers the, the way you do. Do you have a sense of like, what are the entrenched interests who are, have, have a vested interest in not understanding what you're saying? Mm-hmm. And I, I think there are a lot of interests out there and, and I don't, uh, I don't fault any of the industries, the, the drug industries or, or others. I mean, they're all trying to, uh, make money and, and, and they should, they should make money. Um, I think it's really, at least I view it as, as my, my, uh, uh, calling to uh, expose people to the concept. And obviously there's entrenched interests out there that they do profit significantly from the current system that reimburses based on either the complexity of the procedure or the number of procedures or the uh, number of uh, pills that uh, are consumed. And so obviously there is that significant uh, financial incentive for, for things not to change. But I think if we can look at it from a positive perspective and not, you know, not uh, assign blame to those industries, but yet be forceful and say, here's, here's another approach and, and look, look at what this can do for costs. Then I think that uh, those will, those interests will just kind of go by the wayside a little bit. What what about the insurance industry itself? It's not monolithic, right? Aren't there, aren't there some insurers who actually get paid a percentage of the money spent in clinics and hospitals, as opposed to like like are there are there parts of the insurance industry that don't benefit monetarily from reducing costs? Well, I think um, I think most most insurers are compensated essentially where they would get a percentage of the healthcare costs because that's what the premium is based on. So if you have uh, healthcare costs that are, you know, say a million dollars instead of 500,000, the insurance company is going to get X percent of that million instead of X percent of 500,000. So there, obviously there is that incentive to, uh, keep those costs high. Um, but I think really we're at the point where the premiums have gotten to such a level where it becomes unaffordable for the average person. And, and so, whereas in the past, maybe the average person could absorb these increased costs from year to year, we're, we're approaching a point where that's not just going to, they're not going to be able to afford it anymore. And, and something's going to have to to change. So, so in other words, the insurance companies get paid a percentage of what the assumed, the assumed total cost will be because they're, um, 
the premiums are are a essentially that cost plus profit. Right, right. And if they want to maintain a certain profit margin, um, I mean, unless they want to take a reduced profit, then then they're going to just get that same percentage of uh, whatever the premiums happen to be. So, so in other words, we have our, our, our hundred people and all of a sudden somebody comes around in a truck installing window guards. So people stop falling out of their second story window after, after a few years the premiums would go down. That's correct. I, I liken it to the uh, impact of driverless cars. There's a lot of attention in the property casualty insurance industry about the impact of driverless cars on uh, uh, auto insurance premiums. And, and no doubt if, if that comes to be and, and is a widespread phenomenon, uh, in theory, the number of accidents should go down. And the the, uh, the auto insurance premium should go down, and so that means less overall money coming in for insurers. Mm. So that so it seems like I mean, I I used to uh, run a marketing agency, and I I help people with their Google advertising, and the standard in the industry, the, the standard model for people like me and companies like mine was. I would get a percentage of your spend. Like however much money you were spending with Google to advertise your business, I would get, you know, 5% of that or 3.5% of that. And it quickly became apparent to me that there is a conflict of interest, right, between me and my client. Because if I go in and I say, hey, you're, you know, you're paying too much for this campaign, I can help you lower the, the cost of the campaign that if I'm charging on a percentage of spend, then I've just given myself, you know, a decrease in, in, in income. And it, se- it seems like just like there are other ways that you could set up an insurance industry that were more win-win. Have, are, am I right? Is, are, there, are there other models? Well, I think um, the, the model that I think makes sense is that um, – we compensate uh, right now. We're we're paying providers based on the number of procedures and the uh, you know complexity of those procedures. If we if we change more to a model where we're paying on actual outcomes, health outcomes. How did we you know this this gentleman who has diabetes or heart disease? what did we actually do to improve his health? Not how many times did he uh, see his primary care doctor or how many times did he uh, adhere to his medication? What did we really do to make him healthier? And, and if, we, if we change our method of compensation based on that, I think that's really the direction we need to go. I'm, I'm just imagining... So when I when I get my uh, you know healthcare.gov email, which I probably will never get again, uh, and they ask you know or any insurer says, well you we pick your plan. Right now, you know we my family eats healthy, so we're not looking at a high risk of most you know chronic diseases. We're, so I just look at well what's the you know the catastrophic and anything I think I'm going to do. So I'm I'm making decisions, but I really am buying a bunch of if-then procedures, right? And instead, like, I'm imagining, like, what if, the, what if the thing was, 
would you like you and your family to be unhealthy, moderately healthy, pretty healthy, very healthy, extremely healthy? And for each one of those, I could pay more money. Like that would be kind of an interesting. <laughs> it would, it would. I mean, but that's really what we should be talking about is how healthy do you want to be? Not how many procedures do you want next year? <laughs> well, it just, it, it, that just kind of blew my mind a little bit because I really, even with all my years of trying to help people get healthy, I've still always thought of insurance as paying for like desired outcomes like doctor's visits and pills and surgeries if they become necessary as opposed to like what we really, really want, which is to, to be healthy or, or, or is that, am I, am I an outlier? Do most, do most people, as far as you know, like not really care about being healthy or taking responsibility, but just want the coverage? Well, I think I think people do want to be healthy. I think there's no doubt about it. And I think right now they are dissatisfied with the results they get when they go to their physician because those results are not uh, they're not getting results. And so, but but yet they don't know another way other than to try another physician or another healthcare provider. Um, so I think if if we as an industry came out and said, really the goal of you buying this health insurance is not to pay for all your procedures next year, even though we may do that, the real goal of you purchasing this policy from us is to make you healthier. And that is our sole focus when you buy this policy and, and we'll do everything you can, we can to help you, but, but you have a role in that as well, uh, to, to, to help make you healthier. Hmm. So now, now it's getting complicated in my mind because, because I'm thinking, first of all, um, you know, like I have a UVerse by AT&T for my internet and I pay them, you know, a hundred bucks a month for all the services. And the best thing is if I never see them, Right, the truck never comes out because it works. But whenever there's a problem, they send somebody out. They don't charge me for it. And I think, like, wouldn't it be like insane to pay for? Okay, so my I'm going to pay for how many visits do I want them to make this month? Three or seven or ten? Or you know, if I'm really flush and I really want the premium Uverse service, they'll come out every day and fix something <laughs> that's broken. Right? <laughs> Isn't isn't that kind of the, the the paradigm shift we're talking about in health insurance? It is. I mean, that's 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 it. <laughs> but at the same time, like I get, um, you know, like fire insurance or something, or or, or so, like some some insurance that feels, um, I, let let's say. Um, like product replacement insurance. I'll buy some piece of electronics from Best Buy and they'll sell me the, you know, the $25 two-year extended warranty. Right. Then if it doesn't break in those two years, I feel ripped off. <laughs> is, is, there, is there any of that sort of like remorse? Like, Well, I, th I think there is sometimes people want to use their insurance and uh, sometimes in life insurance, people buy a policy and they, they kind of complain about the premium and, and 
the answer to that is, well, you haven't died, so so be glad for that. And uh, <laughs> it's kind of the same thing, I think, in in the health insurance world. It's uh, obviously there needs to be some amount of money paid to cover those unfortunate circumstances, and and if you don't have any of those uh, circumstances where you need to get some type of procedure or, or medication, that's that's great. I mean, that's really the goal, and, and uh, the more we have of that, the lower we can uh, redu- reduce premiums as low as possible. Right. And, and, you know, just from a sort of a, you know, win-lose, zero-sum game perspective, you know, if, if we keep the premiums the same, and so, the, you know, and we, and we reduce costs, like I'd be happy to give all that to the insurance company if people, you know, if we're actually getting health, you know, if we're getting ROI of of health and vigor and time at work and time with, you know, all that stuff that we're supposed to get from our from our uh, medical and health industry. If we're getting that, why not give the rest to the insurance company? Exactly, I I agree. It, it uh, we're really not getting the, the the public is not getting value right now for health insurance. They're getting their procedures done, no question about it. We're reimbursing hospitals, we're reimbursing physicians, but uh, there's very little value being received uh, for those premium dollars. So for, for how long have you been beating the drum of the plant-based approach to health care in, in your industry? Well, really, it's been uh, very recently. I myself uh, adopted the plant-based diet about three years ago and uh, had had great uh, results with that. And uh, so as, as I got into that, I uh, was looking around to see, well, what, what, uh, what can be done with this? Because I think it's such an exciting concept. And being in the health, in, health insurance industry, uh, I really didn't see other insurers out there or any actuaries or really anybody else in the industry talking about this topic. So I uh, put together a, a paper to kind of uh, summarize my thoughts and, and uh, uh, then I could send that to others in the industry and, and get their feedback on, on, on this concept because like, like me, I was not up until three years ago um, was not even familiar with with the research and and the uh, the ability of of a plant based diet uh, uh, to reduce healthcare costs. So, it really is just kind of in the in the beginning stages to to talk to others in in my industry. Is is there a precedent in medicine in the last twenty or thirty years or so of something coming along that is better and cheaper and being embraced? Well, I think uh, I think a lot of new drugs have been embraced very quickly. I don't know that they're they're cheaper. I think <laughs> a lot of times it goes the other way that they're uh, these new drugs are, are very very expensive, and and some of them may work quite well, uh, and maybe a lot of them don't work quite well. But uh, I'm not, I'm not aware of overall any any uh, medica- traditional medication or procedure that addresses, you know, the whole host of chronic conditions, especially that uh, 
whole food plant-based nutrition does. Yeah, I, 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 I realize that. I'm just thinking, is, is there any case of, you know, let's say a new way of delivering, you know, insulin or, or something that was just, you know, it's it just, you didn't need the big machine or you didn't need long hospital stays, like something that just reduced costs and everyone said, oh, that's a great idea. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm not aware of anything right off the top, but uh, you know what we see in the, looking at medical trends. Even though the last oh three or four years the trends have been lower, uh, really over the last twenty plus years the, the trends have been very high, very uh, uh, much higher than normal inflation is, and and that's really where the problem has been. So even if there's maybe some pockets here and there of improvement. Overall, the last 20 years, you have medical inflation, I don't know, maybe 8% and, and normal inflation in the economy of, you know, 2 to 2 to 4%. And so that's, you know, after, after a while, that, that's where we find ourselves, and that's, that's why we've gotten in trouble. Huh. So this is a, a systemic problem, that medicine just keeps getting more complex and more expensive, as opposed to what you would expect from a capitalist system that things get, you know, I mean, look at computers in the last 20 years. I mean, just, you know, everything we can think of that has a technological component to it has just gotten so much cheaper that the, you know, the the people who sold the first ones couldn't imagine. Right. So much cheaper, so much uh, better and more effective in terms of the like computer technology, but on the, on the medical front, it seems to go the other way. It's, it's not cheaper. It's more expensive and you, you could make the argument that it's, I don't know, about less effective, but not, not substantially more effective as compared to uh, uh, the, tech, the uh, computer technology that's out there. So do you think it's because of the, the insurance component to it? So that if, we, you know, if we we're buying our computers on an insurance basis and our phones, that, that somehow the system would malfunction? Like, what, what is it about medicine that makes it like not follow the the laws of the the uh, invisible hand. Well, I think it's um, the the kind of the way we've we've set up the system. We're uh, incentivizing these procedures and pills, and that's that's what we're paying for. We're paying for the procedure. We're not paying for the outcome. Whereas on the technology side on the computer technology you know people are willing to pay for the next generation of technology because it's it's so much better and uh we just there's there's uh there's nothing like that insurance it, it keeps getting more expensive and and we keep paying for it even though the quality is not there so it's it's kind of turned on its head from looking at comparing to computer technology. So when you shared your paper and you talk to people in the industry, what, what's the pushback that you get? Well, I think a lot of it is people think that um, when you present this concept to somebody with a chronic condition, especially, that they won't adopt it themselves. It's too too far out of the mainstream. It's too different from the way uh, people think and people eat. And so they, 
they uh, they don't even want to bring it up with their uh, uh, policyholders or clients uh, because it is so different. And, and that's really the biggest pushback that, that I've had. It, it's not so much that the the evidence is is uh, made up or, or faulty. The research is definitely sound, um, but it's more that it's a uh, too hard of a, a thing for people to adopt. Is there any evidence to support that view? I, I haven't found any, and I've and I've looked. I mean, I've seen uh, the, what the studies show is is people that you know, especially those with with a chronic condition, looking for solutions. If you present it to them and explain it to them properly, you're going to have a 80, 90 percent uh, adherence rate over the long term. And, and once people do adopt it, they they feel so much better that um, that there's there's really no going back. Because I remember looking at um, I don't know if it was a Kaiser or a Humana study that Colin Campbell was was showing me around. Like pe- people don't adopt better lifestyles, but the lifestyle was like, you know, eat more vegetables, cut back on red meat, like these really, really vague pablums mm-hmm. that, right. um, you know, that, the, that, that somebody puts forward, you know, maybe in good faith or maybe, you know, throwing out something that they know no one's going to take seriously so they can say, ah, this, this lifestyle stuff doesn't work. Let's, uh, let's keep pumping them with, uh, with pills and procedures. Right, and I talk about that in my paper as well. It's it's really more than saying eat more vegetables or reduce your level of fat. You really need to be whoever's explaining this, whether it's a doctor or an insurance company and a nutritionist. You need to be very clear on what this is. It's a way to improve your health, to prevent and potentially reverse if you have one a chronic disease. It's it's really not about a diet per se. It's about reversing and preventing disease. And and if you present it in that way, you know there's there's no evidence that people will uh, not adhere to it. It's uh, but if you if you present it like you said, kind of offhand, eat you know, eat more fruits and vegetables. That that's just not going to. Uh, there is not going to be a lot of compliance there because eating more fruits and vegetables, that, that sounds good, and, and everybody knows that, and we've all been told that for years, but that obviously the the overall health care costs have, have continued to mount. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, for, from my perspective, the, the insurance piece is a huge piece of the puzzle for kind of mass adoption. You know, so people like you and me can watch Forks Over Knives, and hang out and, you know, hang, hang out in um, our communities and, and go to retreats and things. But in terms of the, the masses, the doctors aren't going to prescribe this. If they're not going to get paid for it. They're not going to hold, you know, classes, chip classes or wellness forum health classes or their own, um, you know, plant-based education if they have to do it on their own dime on Wednesday nights and stay late. Um, so if, if you like had a, a bunch of investors, if you had, I don't know how many, how much money you need as a, as a starting point for a fund for an insurance health insurance fund. But if you had that amount, I don't know, a billion, 10 billion, like what would, what would you create? Well, before I answer that, I'll 
talk a little bit about what I uh, talked about in the paper, and I don't get into a whole lot of detail because uh, I think actuaries have the ability to design uh, different systems for what fits their model. But right now, like I say, we have uh, a model based on uh, pills and procedures, and that's that's how we're compensating physicians. And you're right, physicians don't want to uh, take all this on, these lifestyle education uh, uh, materials themselves. But if we can make a shift in existing insurance companies where we would pay the physician their regular fee schedule, but on top of that, we would compensate them for essentially just having a brief conversation with their patients, and especially those with chronic conditions. And and if they would recommend to their patients that they go to some type of, whether it be a seminar or a webinar or a website or some type of educational session, then we would compensate the physician for that. And then additionally, if this was somebody, say, uh, with diabetes, incurring $10,000 of claims a year, if by going through this process, getting educated about uh, lifestyle and diet, if then the patient would reduce its claim costs significantly, say from 10000 to 2000 then uh, a system could be set up where the physician would benefit from that and potentially share in that savings over the long term. So when you think about it, if somebody age 50, has diabetes and has $10,000 of claims a year, they're likely to have that same amount or even greater over the next 30 years over their life. And so if we could really hold out to physicians that if you really essentially cure this person by educating them on proper lifestyle choices, we will, we will compensate you for that over this person's lifetime. And and that's that's a difficult thing to figure out how all those dollars move around, but I think that's really where we need to be. <laughs> it reminds me of a cartoon from uh from the Big Book of Jewish Humor where there's a you know, an old old-time baseball stadium and there are these um, ads in the on the the uh, the bleach, you know the walls to separate mm-hmm. the outfield from the bleachers. And one of them, you know, like they have these, they would have like, you know, hit this sign and win a salad or win a steak or whatever. And, you know, for the incentive for the batter to have a, you know, big hit. And one of the, one of the cartoon had um, this guy saying, um, you know, hit this sign and, you know, Abe Liebwall will, will uh, give you a free suit. And behind the, outfield, <laughs> out behind the outfielder, there's Abe Liebwall with a mitt <laughs> trying, to, trying to protect that spot of wall. Like you know, if you if your doctor knew that they were going to get you know, let's say, a thousand bucks a year because you're healthy, like they would like follow you around and protect right. you. Like they would, I, that would become their mission to keep their patients alive and well. And they would they would make make out like bandits. Like wouldn't that be exactly funny? that? That's what we need to do is change the incentive system. And uh, I I really don't see any other way. To do it other than than that that type of model 
because I can, I can then, I mean, the cascading effect would, would then hit medical schools, right? All of a sudden they'd realize, mm-hmm. well, what I've been learning isn't going to get me paid in this new system. Exactly. So, so in terms of an investor, um, you know, if they had a billion dollars or, or something looking to invest, uh, I think they could partner with insurance companies and, and really, um, whether it be educate physicians or, or helping with uh, developing these monetary incentives, you know, putting that money to use to do everything possible to drive people to better health. Could could an existing company do this as a little experiment? Like they wouldn't have to change the entire model, but let's say like take one population, one state, or you know, one one fiftieth or one hundredth of their business, and see what happens over five years. Right, exactly. Any any company could do this tomorrow. It's it's not. Uh, you don't have to put in place all these financial incentives, but I think. The, the second part of my paper, one, is the incentives for the physicians, and that's obviously more of a, a long-term uh, change that would have to be set up. But, but really, the other part um, is what I call for in the role of insurance companies, is that is simply just to let their insured members know that this concept exists. And it's not really to have insurance companies uh, practice medicine or or prescribe uh, a, a particular course of treatment. They would want to make that clear, but simply to let their patients, their insured customers, know that there's an approach out there that's been medically proven for many many years, where you, if you have heart disease, if you have diabetes, if you're obese, um, you know, go on and down the list that you can reverse those conditions, you can get off your medication if possible, and, uh, you know, here's some, here's some resources where, you know, some websites or some materials that you may want to look at and, and uh, review them for yourself and, and, uh, and try it out. And, and, and that's, that's really what worked for me. I mean, it wasn't an insurance company coming to me, but I just stumbled on this information and, and was able to evaluate it myself and and gave it a try. And I, and I think if insurance companies would just take that one little step, I mean, they're, they're talking to their policyholders all the time with various uh, communications, and uh, it's something that can be done inexpensively and, and fairly quickly. And have you worked out like a business case like you would take to, a, to an executive and say, Here's how you solve your problem and, you know, stay flush and, and satisfy your shareholders and mitigate risk and and contribute to, like, public health? Well, it's kind of what I was just describing there. It's, it's we would just send out materials and uh, let people uh, know about it, and then they would have to obviously consult their own physicians themselves. We, we couldn't get in, get involved in in treating them as an insurance company, but, uh, it's, uh, that, that would really be the, be the business case. That, I mean, but, but you, you, you have like financial projections to say, 
you can still make a living doing this, and in fact, it might be a better living? Well, I yeah, I mean, it's it's really hard to pin down exactly what impact it's going to have. I mean, if you told a million people, we don't really know if, you know, 10% are going to think it's a good idea and adopt it or, you know, 40%. It's that that's a kind of an unknown. And then what impact would it have on the uh the uh claims that a company were to see? I mean, those are all kind of uh uh, very hard to figure out numbers. So I, I don't have a exact number, but I think that would be the thing that if if we could get some companies that would want to try that, uh, we could learn learn that information fairly quickly. Mm. It almost seems like you have a uh, sort of Edison problem, right? How's he going to sell light bulbs unless he builds the power grid? <laughs> you need a lot of infrastructure, both physical and mental or you know if everyone sort of switched overnight it would you know there'd be a lot less risk for insurance companies than wondering well are people actually going to take advantage of this are the doctors really going to get behind this when they're we're telling them to do something that they haven't been trained for yeah i mean it's it's uh it's one of those things you you don't really know exactly where it's going and uh how it's all going to work out but for me, the bottom line is I think as as insurers and as an actuary, we're we're uh, we have a code of conduct that really says our our first priority is is the public interest. It's really not our employers. It's not our industry. It's really we we are here to serve the public. And I I can't think of anything more important to get the message out to the public is here, here's an option for you. If, if you care to look into it more that could essentially save your life. And, and it's not so much about living to a hundred. It's about having that quality of life uh, without being in and out of doctor's offices for the rest of your life. And if you would like to look into it more then you know, Please, please do so. And I think that's really the the first step. And, and there's obviously a lot of infrastructure and, and other technical things that will need to be worked out. But uh, that's, I think, a, a good first step. Right. I did not realize there was a code of conduct. So you have your own um, Hippocratic Oath? Basically, right. And uh, there's a, there's disciplinary standards in place. And so we we're uh, required to follow those, and, and if if we don't, then we can be uh, called to task for that. Hmm. I had no idea. So when when I first asked you about um, pushback, right? Uh, you know why people aren't adopting this when it makes so much sense financially? You said you know the people aren't willing to change. So I'm thinking about you know other industries where there has been disruption, like. You know, like every industry, uh, you know, Microsoft could have owned the Internet, but they they didn't see it coming. So Google took over. Google could have owned everyone's data, but they didn't see social. So Facebook took over. You know, Steve Jobs saw the mouse at, uh, at Palo Alto Research Center. And like, you know, the end of the, you know, uh, Kodak doesn't matter anymore. It's all, all you know, all these disruptions. If 
if people are stuck in their ways, uh, which seems to be sort of the natural human condition, is there room for, for some new insurance company to just like blast out of the gate with a totally different approach? I, I think so. I mean, if um, if somebody could lead with this approach, start up a brand new insurance company, and and it would attract people that are receptive to this message, and by doing so, they would have very good claims experience. Therefore, they could charge a very low rate of premium. And anytime you have low premiums, that attracts more people to the business. And so you will gradually then pick up people who are, who are not familiar with this message, and then that gives you a chance to educate them. So I think it, it, it does have potential for a, like a, a startup, a disruptive type company to really make a go out of it. Although that there's also then the, the the danger, like charter schools coming and poaching away all the highest performing students and and the best teachers. So that if an insurance company comes along and takes the healthiest people, you know, the Whole Foods crowd, then they they take all of those people out of the pool. So other people's insurance skyrockets. That is certainly a risk. That's that's true, and uh, and I think if something like that were were to start to happen, then it would at least give additional attention to this approach and and maybe people would start talking about it a little bit more whereas whereas now it's really not in the in in the uh, everyday vernacular right and may, maybe you know an enlightened federal government or state governments could subsidize people's insurance policies that kept them out of the emergency room for you know the risk of diabetic coma and heart attacks and, and all the things that the, the taxpayers end up picking up. Right. And and we've talked a lot about the uh, private insurance industry, but really um, you, you can't uh, really talk about health insurance without talking about really where the big money is, and that's in the government programs of Medicare and Medicaid. And, and uh, you know, especially Medicare covering the over 65 population, that's really where you see the impact of all these chronic diseases that have been building up. I mean, probably 99% of the American population has a chronic disease. They just don't know it yet. And, and it will only surface when they, when they turn, you know, 65, 70, 75. And, and if the uh, Medicare system would just uh, put this out there again as, as an option, then uh, I think it would really get a lot of attention uh, out there. Mm. And I think in that case, you can really clearly see the influence of, you know, pharmaceutical money on politics, right? Because they're, they're the ones who stand to lose by people shifting from, you know, Bayeda to broccoli. Right. <laughs> That's right. So it, beco- it becomes a lot, a lot cl- clearer and more transparent why, why we have this dysfunctional system. And uh, there's always talk about Medicare and, and how long that will last, and is the uh, Medicare trust fund going to run out in in ten years? And and uh, there's so there's always that talk. And if if this were to spread within the Medicare 
population. I mean, for one, that that talk would go away. And two, you're really talking about money that's freed up that can go to much more productive causes. Right now, 18% of the economy is spent on healthcare, and that includes Medicare and other things. But, um, you know, it could be spent on, you know, roads or, or education or what you name it. But uh, right now we've got 18% of the uh, the economy going to healthcare, and it's just uh, there's no uh, there's no end in sight. That that number keeps seeps to going up and up. And and if we can just address Medicare, that would be a significant portion of it right there. Mm. So what are your what are your plans over the next, you know, months and years to uh, to get this message out and convince people? Well, I just keep uh, talking with people in the industry about it and trying to uh, explain the concept to them and, and how it uh, could benefit, really, society. Um, I mean, it really it's really a win-win for everybody. And as you mentioned, there's maybe certain interests and, and even the insurance industry who may, in the short run, um, it, it could bring in less money to those interests. But we really need to, to focus on what benefits society as a whole, because if, if uh, health care costs consume too much of the economy, if, it, if health insurance premiums become too expensive for the average individual, then we really have more more serious problems uh, to address. So we really need to think about how it uh, impacts the the economy as a whole. Right. We're 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 all in the same boat. Boat. If someone's making money by drilling holes in it, mm-hmm. that's uh, that's not good for the rest of us. Well, Ken Beckman, thank you so much. This has been illuminating and fascinating, and, I, and I'm. I think I'm much smarter now about what some of the limitations are and what what really the possibilities are for structural changes in in the way we think about health. Well, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity, Howard, and I appreciate the work that you do. All right. Well, take care. Um, I'll include a link to your your paper, if that's all right, in the the show notes. Yeah, that would be great. People can can read it and see for themselves. And... uh, yeah, let's let's stay in touch. I have a feeling someone's going to make a trillion dollars off of this, and you know, <laughs> what? Why not us? <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, whoever whoever makes it is is fine with me. So right, I just want a little bit. <laughs> All right, take care, Ken. Thanks again. Okay, thanks, Art. Bye bye. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself Podcast, episode two hundred, woohoo! Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. <clears throat> For more information about the Big Change Program, led by me and Josh Lajani, visit BigChangeProgram.com. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to everything we talked about at PlantYourself.com slash 200. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 199 archived episodes over at PlantYourself.com. And if you get the podcast, but you don't get my mostly weekly email newsletter, The Big Change Bulldog, you can sign up and get the Beat the Bully report at plantyourself.com bully. Big thanks to Plant Yourself podcast patrons 
Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherly, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Wilkonowski, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Kristen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Julianne Rowland, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzak, Jeanette Benham. <gasps> for your generous support of the podcast. And of course, thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. If you would like to support the show, you can share this and other episodes on social media and via email. I've noticed a kind of uptick this month. I'm hoping that uh, the Plant Yourself podcast is about to embark on a growth spurt in terms of audience, in terms of the number of people we're reaching with this message. And you can do that by sharing it. You can also do it by writing a review on iTunes. I got a beautiful one. It actually made me tear up this morning from Bonnie Under the Sea, who writes, I love this podcast. And after listening to the episodes with Paul Chatlin and Ed and Amanda Smith, who have channeled their passion for a plant-based lifestyle into positive community action, I was inspired to create a community in my own town. Howard, the plant-happy community in Sisters, Oregon, salutes you. And you have my deepest gratitude for helping to nurture those seeds of change in my own heart. Your podcast is an oasis of thoughtfulness, knowledge, and positivity, and I hope you'll keep it up for many episodes to come! Exclamation point. Wow, Bonnie Under the Sea, I've never had the urge to get a tattoo, but if I did, that's what I would put on my skin. Thank you so much. In garden news, we've had a freaky week and a half with temperatures in the high 70s, and we're having frosts at night, so I'm not sure how our blueberries are going to live through it. But the kale is doing very well, and I'm still building up the hoogle culture bed using logs, wood chips, and everything else, and we'll see how that goes this summer. In running news, this is my last hard week, and then I taper for the marathon the third week in March. And so I'm kind of looking forward to resting and then uh, emptying my capacity, as Josh Lajani says, emptying my capacity during the marathon and seeing if I can get, you know, 3.45, four hours. I think 3.30 is a little bit too ambitious a goal. I'm not going to go out that fast, but uh, we will see and I will let you know. That's it for this week. So as always, be well, my friends. <laughs> <laughs>